0: This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is our Tuesday use case episode, and as you're well aware, we like to talk about the before and after of artificial intelligence in individual business processes and workflows. Christophe Salazé is the CTO and founder of Turbine.ai. He's our guest this week. He was on the program some two years ago. This company, Turbine, has since grown leaps and bounds, raised a tremendous amount of money in that interim couple years doing some exciting things. So we talk about how drug discovery operates today. What's the process? What's the workflows? What are the bits and pieces that go into getting a drug discovered and developed? And where along those workflows is AI fitting its way in? Christoph does a great job of describing what he thinks will shift in the years ahead and also why it's awful hard to deploy artificial intelligence in the pharmaceutical and drug discovery space. Some interesting insights around enterprise deployment challenges that I think will apply for essentially everybody tuned in to this program. If you're interested in more generally applicable AI use cases, then be sure to check out Emerge+. Plus. Emerge Plus is our resource for deploying artificial intelligence and finding the right AI applications for your business. It's our paid platform for all of our content. If you're interested in best practices for AI ROI and simple frameworks for deploying AI and a full library of use cases, including a whole slew of use cases in life sciences, organized and sorted by business functions, so you can quickly find what might work in your business. If you'd like to have access to all that or learn a bit more, you can go to emerj.com slash P1, that's P is in plus, E-M-E-R-J dot com slash P, and then the number one, and you can learn more about Emerge Plus there, and if you're interested in drug development, when you hop in on Emerge Plus, you'll be able to see our Pharmaceutical and Life Sciences section of the AI Use Case Explorer, and there is a treasure trove there waiting for you. Uh, without further ado, we're going to fly in. This is Christoph with Turbine.ai, here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Chris, I want to start us off on the topic of drug discovery, what it takes to bring a drug to market. Obviously, this is the world that you guys work in. Before we talk about AI, can you walk us through what that process looks like normally, just to give people a sense if they're not in the industry?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually an exciting time here because these are kinds of slowly changing here. But the basic drug discovery process is kind of long and convoluted. So how big pharma companies work is that they have a set of compounds, basically a million or more little chemical molecules that they have no idea what they are good for. But they have this, imagine it as a big soup, which contains all of these molecules. Yeah. Then if you want to target a certain kind of disease, or, or do a certain kind of treatment. One way you could do this potentially is that say if I could target protein X, if I would have a molecule that would bind to protein X, that would potentially help me solve a certain kind of, let's say, lung cancer. Sure, sure, yeah. So this is one of the one of the first questions that comes up is how do you know that this is going to be the right target? So we'll we'll get back to that. Where where does this target ideas came from? Because this is this is one of the parts where, where AI actually shines now. But given that, uh, what they will do is they take, say, a spoonful of this compound soup, they call it the compound library, and pour it on a concoction that basically contains the protein of interest. And then they pull out, well, there are multiple steps involved, but basically they pull out the protein. They extract the protein and see what compounds did it bind. Mm -hmm. You now have a compound that can bind at least that protein to some degree.
0: Yeah. And how many, you know, this analogy of soup is hilarious, but I'm going to go with it because I like it. It's very visceral. I think it's understandable for people. I imagine this huge compound library that has been built. One quick question here. Some of these compounds are just known, like everybody knows what these compounds are. Some of them might maybe are proprietary or they've been stumbled into somehow. What has built this library, so to speak? Where where do these things come from and how are they
1: stored? I'm not very much an expert on that, but as far as I know, these chemical libraries are basically randomly generated. Uh, So you take some kind of base library and add certain perturbations in certain enzymes okay, that add material groups to that. And then you have some compounds which have the material groups, others don't. And you do this kind of modifications, and you basically end up with a bunch of random molecules, out of which there are some may be useful. Okay, okay, yeah. So it's... Basically trying to explore a chemical space. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's a good, a great way to put it. Trying to explore a chemical space, creating those perturbations, you know, almost like a, you know the AI analogy would be Programmatically generating and filling in as much space as we can there. So, we'll take a number of those compounds, which now we've uh, developed or discovered or whatever, pour them physically, do this test, pour them into some kind of solution with this protein, and then run another test to figure out which of them have actually bound to it, because often that binding is going to help us treat a disease or treat a condition or a symptom or what have you. Okay, so that's part of the initial process. And then from there, obviously, there's probably further steps. I realize I had you kind of pause, so I'll let you keep
1: going. Of course, of course. So what you know at this step is that you have a compound that's bound to the protein. You cannot, you are not sure at this point that the binding will do anything useful. So basically you have to measure whether you actually manage to inhibit that protein or you just managed to take on something useless. But if you did manage to inhibit the protein, then the question becomes that how this will be useful? In what kind of cells? Because the next question in line is that it is true that my compound has successfully bound protein, but at this point, I still don't know what else does it bind in a human cell. Hmm. And in, usually these drugs are not very, drugs designed this way or drugs that have been developed this way are not very clean and bind to dozens of proteins.
0: Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, uh, So we figure out what... Compound binds to what protein, and then we have to ask, okay, well, if that happened in a human being, what other proteins is this thing binding to? what other sort of connections are going to occur that maybe we don't want or we do want or or what have you? so we then have to extrapolate to that, and of course, maybe figure out if that's dangerous, I guess, in some way
1: exactly, exactly, so first, don't do this in live humans, of course, first, you do this on human cells in in petri dishes, so basically in, in vitro studies, but what you do next is that ensure that this so or your original hypothesis was that if you bind this target, you manage to actually kill that specific cancer cell or treat the disease, the targeted disease. And then comes your first test in a petri dish, that if you add this compound you found, does that actually do that? What else does it do? The previous steps I described also result in significant attrition. Uh, in compounds, but this is this is basically the first largest divide the compound has to make. Is it efficacious?
0: Yeah, at, yeah.
1: At, in, a, in a petri dish,
0: got it. So um, does it get the job done in the petri dish? Okay,
1: yep. So if, if it does, uh, you can start working on figuring out how to get a stronger binding, how to get a more selective binding, develop the compound, and thereafter comes the point when you actually do this on an animal model. It's usually mice, yeah. yeah. In practice, and there's the second big step of attrition, because what happens in a petri dish does not necessarily happen. Where there are some very different mechanisms involved in uh, in live beings, yeah, than in a in a cultured set of cells.
0: Yeah. You know, there's so many things that I think people listening in just now can already understand how and why this is so tremendously complicated because we have this infinite soup potentially. We have Lord knows how many proteins in the world in a human being that we could potentially bind to. And then there must be hypotheses around what proteins need to be bound to in order to treat a condition. And somebody has to come up with those hypotheses or come up with those permutations and whatnot. So it's it's almost a combinations of infinites at so many of these steps here, it feels
1: like. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There are, and there are a lot of complexity. So, so the primary, one of the primary problems with because the attrition, this attrition rate is so high, because we don't really understand, we don't don't even know the the internals of the biology. We don't know a lot of the proteins, and that's actually one of the ways to do is the original way to try to gain some kind of statistics slash bioinformatics based understanding of how it should work. But in many cases you you don't have thousands of data points. There are like roughly a thousand cell lines, a bit more or less, which are available to the public, well known and can be cultured. And the fact of the matter is that this means that for a certain single drug, you have on the order of a thousand data points. You will never have the millions or tens of millions of data points you need to do the kind of deep AI training. That you would originally envision to do, but all of this wet lab data to gain is very much noisy, and there is not enough data, and so it's it's actually originally was a hard problem to to start tackling with AI, and basically this is behind the longstanding belief that uh, or this is why big pharma companies are so hard. To adopt the uh, adopt AI methods because they've actually burned themselves before. Like they've tried this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but at that point they've burned themselves quite a few times with these methods, and now they are cautious.
0: Yeah. So okay. So now we're going to talk about where AI fits into this mix. So you know, of course, there's a lot of other things of bringing a drug all the way to market, but you've done a great job of describing. What does it look like to test some initial hypotheses to, you know, explore this chemical space for lack of better terms and then progressively move that from petri dishes to animal models? Okay. So we've got this sort of tight little bounded part of the pharma process that's obviously almost infinitely complicated. You said something that I wanted to check in on. You mentioned, you know, we might only have 900 cell lines when we would want millions of data points. What did you mean by that? What is the kinds of data that we do have on hand? And what are, you know, you had also mentioned that there's frustrations with doing the kind of AI we'd want to do. What is the kind of AI we'd want to do in this context? Can you clarify that a bit?
1: Sure. Originally, if you would do kind of this naive AI approach to understanding biology, what you would do is you would build some kind of a neural network classifier, a huge sprawling neural network where you can feed uh, all the biological data points where you've had a lot of different treatments, a lot of different genetic knockouts, uh, and see which cells are alive and which cells are dead. And So given that if you have this system, that this, in theory, captures the underla could capture the underlying complexity of biology and could result and if you give any kind of unknown therapy, he could potentially give you a right answer, whether that cell is live or dead.
0: Okay, okay. So tell me if I'm I'm gonna try to put this in a nutshell, Chris, let me know if I'm on the right page. If we could train a model sufficiently around different kinds of compounds and different kinds of proteins and all their damn reactions, then instead of testing A whole bunch of spoonfuls of the soup over and over and over we might only need to test certain certain small parts of the soup because statistically the model has sort of shown that maybe they're the only ones we realistically need to look at is this part of what you're talking
1: about yes kind of this original method of how we would use ai in this case doesn't really work because there's a lot of noisy data so you have to use methods that use much more prior data. And it's a bit more convoluted. but it seems can be done now. But anyhow, the ways AI would actually be able to change this is you, you could actually turn the entire process on its head. And this is what actually starting to appear in companies, in small biotech companies mainly, is that you you start with a clinical need, the need that I really like to treat pancreatic cancer patients, because this is something that has has been unsolved now. And so given that I have an AI, any, any kind of AI that gives me the ability to tell that if I were to knock out certain genes or certain combinations of genes, how would that cell respond? If I would give that my pancreatic cancer cell, it can tell me what kinds of, Targets you would need to hit, in order to treat that specific disease, and so you could generate. And this is, this is something that's that's actually pretty well. I'm not entirely sure how new it is, but it's some. It's a novel development. I've just heard of it a few years ago. That we are we're actually starting to go in the direction that we are generating new compounds that can fit a target. And there are quite a few companies. For example, Atomwise. Uh, who are doing exactly that. Uh, So what they're trying to do is they have an AI to which you give a protein. It will give you a compound that you don't need to have any kind of library. You just need to know how the protein looks like. And if you know how the protein looks like, their AI will give you a few ideas of what compounds you should synthesize to bind that
0: Yeah. When you say what it looks like, do you mean some kind of a three-dimensional model of the protein itself is provided? Okay. So based on training on however many oodles of proteins and however many oodles of uh, compounds, this system, if you provide it with a protein, will be able to say, well, here's the sorts of realistic compounds that should be able to bind to this. So that would be worth testing, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it.
1: And then you can ask your chemist to, to just synthesize that compound
0: got it okay and that's much better than having to use the soup over and over and over and over until you find something
1: you can kind of make these much more selective because they are designed for that purpose yeah yeah
0: um, okay so that's that's one way one way that artificial intelligence can potentially be applied to this process that you've been kind enough to describe is by just you know having a compound we can have a chemist synthesize and then we can just test that darn compound on the protein and it's it's way less of the what you would call the chemical space that we necessarily have to test across this protein just to figure those things out. We can move along the steps a little faster towards testing on the mouse. Where else in this process that you've outlined for us, I know you guys do plenty of work here, where else in that process does AI potentially serve as a lever to help change that process or speed up that process?
1: Yeah. So the other thing that is also space targeted by us is how, how do you figure out what's the right target? This is what I've mentioned previously, but then, so there's the target, there is the chemical space, and the third thing is whether this will be effective in vitro. What yeah. would happen, and what else would happen, which I didn't expect, if I put this on a, on a certain kind of cell. So, for example, it can and does happen that you imagine your compound to work in a certain kind of cancer. In vitro, it doesn't happen. But for example, it turns out to be, to be pretty good in colon cancer or, or not even cancer. There is the famous story of uh, sildenafil. It's called Viagra, <laughs> which, which is usually it's a phosphodiesterase inhibitor and it's, usually, it's originally planned to, it was developed for heart disease. But it happened to have some kind of beneficial side effects. And so it's stuck,
0: Yeah, yeah. Geez, wow. <laughs> okay, so you had mentioned that uh, the potential use of AI is figuring out, you know, you talk about targets, compounds, and then what are the effects or side effects. Um, you said the selection of the target is a place where AI might even be able to, to find a fit here somehow. Um, what did you mean by that? Where does it kind of come in? How is it trained?
1: So... You have a certain goal in mind that you you aim to treat melanoma, to, to say something different. I'm also always saying cancer because we're kind of focused in on oncology, but it can be Alzheimer's. Yeah, it or could or, be
0: anything. Yeah, of course, it's fine. And
1: so you want to want to treat melanoma, and you need to figure out, uh, get some kind of hypothesis on what would you take, what would get you there, what somehow to give you an original idea. Which likely others potentially don't have because, and it's not patented uh, and whatever could, yeah. could be used. And to do that, the general process now with, with modern technology or with the state of the art wet lab technology is to do something called CRISPR. Uh, this is basically allows you to knock out genes. We also do, uh, well, we outsource it, but generally we order some wet lab studies of our own for verification purposes. But how it happens is that if you want to have a certain gene knocked out for studying, just having a cell line of your selection uh, with that gene knocked out takes like three months from ordering, and then you didn't measure. You just have the cell lines. It takes a bunch of time and a bunch of work. In a simulated system, or in generally an AI kind of system, it just takes flipping a bit or flipping a few bits in your input vector.
0: What is a cell line again, Chris, just for, for those of us who are not I, in the pharma uh, space?
1: A cell line is a culture of human, basically human cells in a petri dish, which has been grown for quite a while. It's, it's a lineage of cells coming from the cancer of a certain unlucky person, what happened to survive in a petri dish and now can be used to test drugs on.
0: Got it. Okay, understood. What you're getting at is that it, instead of instead of having to test even CRISPR on a number of these living systems, if we could model the living system well enough, then we could figure out what kind of treatments might make that impact. So long mm-hmm. as that simulation was was strong enough.
1: Mm-hmm. That's basically exactly what we do. There are there are others who do it with different kinds of AI methods, but but we are we are taking a direct modeling approach. Got it. This also helps in the step when you, when you actually figure out how effective is your compound or whether it will be effective in an, in an in vitro study. For example, if your compound, if your simulation says your compound should do one thing, but then it does another, you can, for example, go back and check whether the compound, uh, there, are, there are actually methods that do this, whether the compound is hitting some other protein which you didn't expect. And based on the pattern you see, an AI can get you this information.
0: Got it. And the idea here is if we can save more cycles of working with petri dishes and new compounds over and over and over, then we can just get ourselves to either most of these rabbit holes we try to run down probably fail anyway. So we can just know if it fails or we can move forward if we think it's promising without as much of this manual testing of, of you know, the wet lab here.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. Cool. With the, basically the main idea of going putting AI in that drug discovery at all is to decrease that humongous attrition rate we have, which is just for example in cancer, this is what I know the number for, from the start, ninety nine percent of the target targets fail. And the development cost for a single successful compound is Roughly on the order of three billion dollars, and it's that high. Not because it takes that much to develop that single drug. That's how much it takes, considering all the fair trials as well. Yeah, that led to that.
0: and all the the talented people that have to do those trials, right? We're not we're not outsourcing this to some you know uh, some random call center in the Philippines, right? I mean, we're getting people from really good schools, and we're we're you know paying for them in probably very nice cities. So yeah, there's there's challenges here. It sort of feels like one of the hardships is like it's just so hard to model this biological information in a way that's machine readable as well. It feels like that's that's part of the big hurdle here that that has to be overcome over the years ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, at least there's been a couple pockets you've you've sort of articulated for us as to how it's making its way into the process in some ways, and, and hopefully speeding up, like you had said, that egregious attrition rate to bring that $3 billion down to something slightly more manageable, if at all possible. I know that's all we have for time on this particular episode, Chris, but thank you so much for being able to join us again on the podcast.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Doug.
0: So that's all for this episode of the AI in Business Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you're interested in learning more from us and particularly more use cases, we have an entirely separate podcast called AI in Financial Services. I know many of you who are tuned in now work in some way in financial services or are just interested in what financial services is doing. The fact of the matter is, wealth management, insurance, and banking are pouring way more money into artificial intelligence than most enterprise sectors. And what they're doing for search and discovery, what they're doing for customer service, what they're doing for all kinds of AI applications is gonna be important for your sector as well no matter what sector you operate in. So go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, go to SoundCloud and search for AI in Financial Services Podcast and you're going to hear yours truly again uh, with a new slew of guests so you can have even more use cases and interesting insights about AI ROI to learn from. Again, financial services is farther ahead than most sectors. So hopefully it'll be useful for some of you who are listening to the AI in business podcast. That's all for this episode. We're going to be getting into our making the business case episode on Thursday. So I'll catch you in two days here.